This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Do you say and do things when drinking that you regret the next day? Is alcohol a problem for you or someone you really care about? Over the next hour, we'll find out how people just like you and me found sobriety in AA through sharing their experience, strength and hope. Welcome to AA Live, brought to you by Alcoholics Anonymous. Good evening, folks. Lovely to have you here this evening. Welcome along to AA Live Radio Show. This is the show that explores the ideas behind a way of recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous program. It's great to have you all with us, and I would also like to warmly welcome my co-host this evening, Tony, Chrissy. how are you? Lovely to have you here today. They are both members of the fellowship, AA fellowship as well. Good to see you. Yeah, hi Jen, nice to be here. Yeah, looking forward to the show. Lovely. Okay, let's start with the serenity prayer. God, God, grant grant me the serenity to accept the things things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, sure, Um, Jen. I'm going to read out the... um, Preamble and what this does is it discloses what what AA is and and more importantly what AA isn't. So here we go. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy. Neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. Lovely. Thanks, Tony. If you've heard anything um, in that reading, I'd just like to offer that or say that our opinions are just that. Um, they're our opinions and not necessarily of AA as a whole. Um, so anything you hear on this programme uh, from us? It's just us three drunks, isn't it? It's yeah. our opinions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we do use the AA literature. So, you know, we are, you know, I guess we're right down the middle in terms of, of the literature we use. But of course, yeah, um, you know, it's our, yeah. How we said is our opinions. Exactly. Know, might not necessarily be yours. Yeah. Chrissy, would you do this the honour today of reading up the daily reflection for the 10th of August? That would be so lovely of you. I sure would. Thank you. Redoubling our efforts is the title today. To a degree, he has already done this when taking moral inventory. But now the time has come when he ought to redouble his efforts to see how many people he has hurt and in what ways. As I continue to grow in sobriety, I become more aware of myself as a person of worth. In the process, I am better able to see others as persons, and with this comes the realisation that these were people whom I had hurt in my drinking days. I didn't just lie, I lied about Tom. I didn't just cheat, I cheated Joe. What was seemingly impersonal acts were really personal affronts, because it was people, people of worth, who I'm, I had harmed. I need to do something about the people I've hurt so that I may enjoy a peaceful sobriety. 
That's wonderful. Thanks, Chrissy. That certainly gives food for thought, doesn't it, folks? Uh, Tony, I'd love it if you could uh, read a, a little bit there for us out of the 12 steps yeah. and 12 traditions on step one. Please. Yeah, sure, Jen. So, um, yeah, so AA literature, in, in the AA literature, we've got a book called 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. And I guess what this does is this particular book breaks down the steps a little more and the traditions that go with it. Um, and so I'm going to be reading from page 21, which is step one. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is truly awful to admit that glass in hand, we have warped our minds into such obsession for destructive drinking that only an act of providence can remove it from us. No other kind of bankruptcy is like this one. Alcohol has now become the rapacious creditor, bleeding us of all self-sufficiency and all will to resist its demands. Once the stark fact is, fact is accepted, our bankruptcy as a going human concerns is complete. But upon entering AA, we soon take quite another view of this absolute humiliation. We perceive that only through utter defeat will we be able to take the first steps towards liberation and strength. Our admissions of personal powerlessness finally turn out to be firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. We know that little good can come to any alcoholic who joins AA unless he has first accepted his devastating weakness and all its consequences. Until he so humbles himself, his sobriety, if any, will be precarious. Of real happiness he will find none at all, proved beyond doubt by an immense experience. This is one of the facts of AA life. The principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is the main taproot from which our whole society has sprung and flowered. When first challenged to admit defeat, most of us revolted. We had reproached AA, we had approached AA expecting to be taught self-confidence. Then when we would had been told then we'd been told that so far alcohol was concerned, self-confidence was no good whatsoever. In fact, it was a total liability. Our sponsors declared that we were victims of a mental obsession so subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower could break it. They said, sorry, there was, they said, no such thing as the personal conquest of this compulsion by the unaided will. Relentlessly deepening our dilemma, our sponsors pointed out our increasing sensitivity to alcohol, an allergy they called it. The tyrant alcohol wielded a double-edged sword over us. We were first smitten by an insane urge that condemned us to go on drinking, and then by an allergy of the body which ensured that we would ultimately destroy ourselves in the process. Few, indeed, were those who, if so assailed, had ever won through single-handed combat. It was a statistical fact that alcoholics almost never recovered on their own resources. And this had been true apparently ever since man had first crushed grapes. Lovely. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much. You are listening to the AA Live show in association with our friends from Otago Access Radio on 105.4 FM. Today we're going to talk a little bit about how we each came to our step one. Uh, and Tony, um, we are lucky enough to have uh, Tony share with us that at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, yeah, thanks, Jen. Um, so, uh, yeah, I hope I don't bore you all out there. Um, but I guess this is um, how I came to see step one. Um, and, you know, I often say it took me 46 years to uh, to get sober, and and there's some truth in that. Um, you know, um, step one, as it says, is, is admitting personal powerlessness over something. And admitting, you know, that my uh, that my life was out of control, um, and like I've just read out of uh, the twelve steps and twelve traditions, um, you know, nobody likes admitting that, and I really struggle with that. I mean, I grew up watching alcohol drunk with impunity. You know, I came out of an alcoholic home where. Um, alcohol was at every occasion, social occasion. It um, it fixed drama. It caused drama. Um, you know, when we ate was dictated by when alcohol was finished being drunk. You know, um, what we did uh, was determined by you know um, whether you know people were hungover or not. You know, um, so it ruled our lives. And as a young kid growing up in this, it all seemed rather normal. You know, um, I didn't really question it. Um, and so uh, when I got to uh, an age, I, I was very young, um, um, very early teens, where I started to drink myself. Um, you know, this seemed a, a normal thing to do, and I got around with people that did the same thing. Um, you know, um, I guess I watched others drinking alcohol with impunity, you know. Um, but, you know, as, as life circumstances change, you know, perhaps they got a girlfriend or perhaps... You know, they got engaged to be married. Um, the drinking petered off and they settled down where mine just kept going, you know. Um, mm. And so, you know, I had this dilemma where I was trying to be so-called normal and responsible, but to carry on with this, this addiction, which, of course, you know, nobody can do with any success. So um, so when I say, you know, step one really, or getting sober took me 46 years, it's along those lines that, that I... Um, you know, I'm sort of talking from. And, you know, right from the very beginning, you know, when I picked up that first drink um, for me, um, you know, it elevated my mood. Um, you know, and as a young teenager, you know, we don't, we're still discovering who we are. We don't really understand fully who we are as, as human beings, you know. But what I did know notice was as soon as I picked up that drink, my mood elevated. And I was set upon another plane, which I absolutely loved. And also loved being intoxicated too. It was something that I really enjoyed. Um, you know, and, and you know, how could something that made you feel so good, okay, with a hangover, you got a hangover the next day, but that was all part of the deal. Um, yeah, how could it ever hurt you? You know, that was under the, I was under its spell pretty much from that first drink and, and just didn't realise it. Um, you know, and I, I think that's what alcoholism does. It, it taps into a person's strength and so slowly erodes, or quickly, depending on your metabolism, erodes it away until you become that person who who I did. You know, um, um, you, you know, I, I was going through some photographs. Um, a family member gave me some photographs of me as a, as a young 17, 18-year-old and, and some other photographs and, and some of the work I used to do. And, you know, there's pictures of me holding cans of beer and smoking and, and stuff. And uh, I kind of look at that young <laughs> guy now and um, go, man, if you only knew what I knew. And, um, mm. and you know, but, but, you know, as a young person, you don't think that because I felt, you know, I was built with a rather large body. You know, I, I kind of saw myself as young and powerful. Um, 
and you know um, as you do when uh, you're young um, but alcohol uh, over the years uh, corroded those sorts of things and you know it probably was by you know in my 20s I knew that I had a problem with alcohol I knew that I was an alcoholic um, but I didn't seriously believe that I couldn't get out of it um, I still felt that there was time and you know I was having fun and there was still that camaraderie going on but as I progressed into my 30s and got married and had children um, you know this lifestyle of drinking which I this addiction that kept going uh, certainly uh, set about ruining um, relationships um, you know within my family structure and um, you know even with a divorce it didn't stop my drinking you know even with those those societal stop signs you know that most other people would um, would go hey you know this isn't working um, with the addiction that I have and had um, you know I, I just kept kept drinking in fact it was one of the ways of solving that broken heart you know um, and, and I drank you know fiercely um, during those experiences um, in my 40s you know this this thing really took hold and and so between 40 and 46 that's when the real damage started to appear um, and by this time I what started out as binge drinking once every several weeks as a teenager or when I could get my hands on alcohol um, you know had become a daily occurrence and I needed alcohol to stay uh, normal and um, and what I mean by that is I would I would drink uh, that night uh, and go to bed and wake up feeling a little crook, not too crook, go to work and say, oh, I'm not drinking today, you know, and I was serious about it, I didn't want to drink. Um, and by the afternoon, early afternoon, the jitters would start to appear and that disease would, would start to happen and those cravings would come back. And, you know, it would be a compulsion that I'd go get more alcohol and the cycle would start again in, in this daily occurrence. But the process, what was happening, um, you know, things were going downhill fast and my mental health was seriously being challenged. Um, and, you know, my behaviour was becoming antisocial. And so I was beginning to appear, you know, in my 40s, not in my teenage years, but in my 40s, I was uh, appearing in the lockups, as they as they say in the big book, I was being arrested and being held um, while I was in, so intoxicated. Um, other times I'd find myself in hospital in A&E um, uh, with nurses and psychologists talking to me um, absolutely I think one psychologist said he's even drunk he's even more drunk in here than he was when you brought him in how, how can this be you know <laughs> um, you know and and eventually I started <laughs> to appear in the mental health wards and um, and you know that was that uh, that deterioration of my mental health through the use of alcohol, uh, chronic use of alcohol, um, and even during those periods, I still couldn't admit defeat. Mm. There was a part of me that still said, you know, most normal people would have gone, "This is not working. I'm going to stop this. This is hurting me." Mm. There was still that element that said, you know. Um, uh, you know, I remember sitting in the mental health ward and I'd woken up and I was a bit dishevelled this day. And I'd been there before, so it wasn't like I was super surprised. But I was coming to and I was outside in this little courtyard having a smoke. And this nurse wanders up and says, oh, look, um, would you like to uh, have a look around the facility? And I said, oh, don't worry about it, mate, I'll be out of here by 10 o'clock. 
he said, well, actually, if you behave yourself, you might be out of here in about four or five days. Um, and I'd been sectioned. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going oh. anywhere. I was, I was being detained. You know, um, you, know <laughs> you should have seen the look on my face. You know? <laughs> um, you know, but that's where it got me. And even then, I still would not admit defeat. Um, you know, uh, and what I mean by that, there's a great difference between saying I'm an alcoholic and actually believing that there is no way out of this thing uh, in my heart. And um, it wasn't until that I hit rock bottom and I seriously injured myself and ended up in hospital. Um, basically, I, I was up against up against it. I was um, I was in a bad way. And um, I spent about uh, nine or ten days in, in the surgical ward and then they moved me on to another ward where I spent you know quite a few weeks uh, convalescing that was just to physically get me right but it was being trapped in that bed in so much pain that I'd finally hit rock bottom mm. I finally to my innermost self it says that we have to smash this illusion this illusion that we can drink like other men has to be smashed and it was in that in that agony and pain in this hospital bed uh, that I was finally trapped I finally had to face myself and say you know and see this is a life and death thing now this is finally um, I have to you know either get busy in recovery or you know this is it I need to go um, you know and and um, and and so it was from that that and I felt awful I felt absolutely awful um, you know in that moment the world the earth could have swallowed me up but it was it was that moment of defeat which I absolutely required spiritually to mm. begin this process of recovery you know and I'm coming up five years um, you know sober actually you know uh, content and happy you know I don't um, you know the world is such a different place to how it used to be so you know I really believe in step one I think it's one of those things you have to fully concede to the rest of them, I think you can you can do in, in increments and parts and get it and get a taste for it and do more. But I think step one, you have to, in your inner heart, you have to come to terms and say, hey, this thing is out of control. My life is truly unmanageable. So it's kind of a little bit about my story anyway, Jen. I haven't bored the listeners too much. I don't think that's boring at all. Thank you very much, Tony. I appreciate you sharing as you have. Look, I'm going to give us all a breather and put on some music. Enjoy this fine this fine song chosen by Tony by Robbie Williams.
your rent Overdose of Christmas I'm giving up for Lent My friends are all so cynical We refuse to keep the faith We all enjoy the madness Cause we know we're gonna fade away We got stars directing our faith Welcome back, folks. Today we're talking about uh, step one, and uh, Tony has graciously just shared with us what uh, step one was for him. And I'm wondering, Chrissy, could you uh, go ahead and share with us what step one meant and was for you as well, please? Sure, Jan, I'd love to. Um, when I first went to AA, um, I... I'd, I'd gone there because a psychiatrist had told me to go there, and my GP as well. So I thought, and I'd been there for a meeting once, and um, sort of, you know, didn't want to give up alcohol, so I didn't go back again. <laughs> um, then when I I went back again, I started sort of learning about myself. I looked at the steps on the wall and thought, oh yeah, okay. And someone said to me, don't worry about that too much yet. You know, you don't. You're just new here. Just come, listen to, the, go to the meetings, listen to the sharing, take the cotton wool out of your ears and shove it in your mouth so you, you can listen. <laughs> and I got that. Um, so, yeah, when I first went to AR, I was like, oh, admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Oh, no, I'm definitely not powerless over alcohol. Um, I had had thoughts in the past, um, a bit like t- what Tony was saying, you know, I noticed all, I had, I'd had two kids, I'd noticed that um, a lot of my peers who were women um, 
stopped drinking so much when they took on the motherhood responsibility, not me. Um, I had um, two kids at the time and the second one, I went out to this party and I gave my daughter a bottle and I thought, oh, this is good, you know. Well, um, mm. yeah, it was good because I could drink more. And I never gave up drinking. I had thoughts of, oh, um, am I depressed because I'm drinking? Or am I drinking because I'm depressed? Mm. And I knew in my heart of hearts and in my subconscious that oh, the drinking was making me depressed. Um, so that's sort of a couple of ways that my powerlessness sort of showed up. But, you know, I didn't want to stop drinking. And it was like a fleeting thought. Um, and so I had trouble with the I'm powerless. It wasn't until I sort of learned a bit about alcoholism, listened to other people sharing in the meetings about what, what used to happen when they got drunk. Um, you know, anything, I'd be driving drunk or they'd say, oh, you know, fell over and broke my arm or, <laughs> you know, stuff like that that would happen. And um, I'd had experiences of that going out and being so drunk one night I got kicked out of a bar and standing there and just sort of bashing my head against a, a, a sort of a square column did great damage. Somebody wanted to take me to A&E, but I was too embarrassed. So, yeah, my life was, was powerless. And so it was listening to people sharing and thinking, oh, heck, you know. Yeah, I did that as well. And I had to be told how to, how to, how to relate. Like, I, I didn't find it easy to relate. And someone said to me, what we do when we come to AA is we admit that we're an alcoholic. Well... I guess that was something that I did without even thinking at, about it. The words were out of my mouth, and once they were out, I couldn't take them back. Then I just sort of, well, that was that. Um, I began to see how my life became unmanageable. Um, looked at things like, oh, I'd rather not pay the power bill this week, you know, I'll just get another bottle of wine. I don't really <laughs> care about my commitments as long as they got paid eventually. <laughs> um, told all sorts of lies to myself, if I'm going to cut down on drinking, which I tried to do at one stage, I'm just going to drink the good stuff. Nothing less than a $12 bottle of wine for me. I'm not going to, that, you know, that car scrubbish, blah, blah, blah. I'm too good for that. Um, yeah, so that was, a, um, that was expensive. <laughs> um, to say the least. Mm. Um, and I continued um, drinking while I was going to AA, you know, and my first best step into powerlessness, I guess, was when someone said to me at a Friday lunchtime meeting, and I was like, I'm, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. Step over to the nearest bar, he said. <laughs> and um, it's in the book, book, big book. If you don't think you're an alcoholic, step over to the nearest bar and see if you can stop after one. Well, you know, I was like, oh, I've got commitments. I've got to go and pick up my kids from school. No, it's got to be done now. So away I went <laughs> over to the nearest bar, which was across the road. 
thinking I'll just have one, ha ha ha, one, no. It was more like I dragged myself out, drove to pick the kids up, drunk, and got home somehow. And yeah, I knew. I knew, and it had been way before that that I'd given up, and I'd been in the toilet dry reaching, and you know, and having even been through having to go on Valium for the last part of my detox. But it was the one that really cemented in my mind, you know, because I'd heard all this stuff about. I was looking for every which way excuse. I'm a binge drinker. Mm-hmm. And it took ages for me to get it through my sick head. And that's the, that's the thing about... Um, and the other thing was the complete and utter demoralisation like the four horsemen. You know, so this, this all helped me come to... There were some big lessons mm. that I learnt through AA that I was really what I was really. And I spent a year and a half in my sobriety... Because I heard in the reading, I had to concede to my innermost self, my heart of hearts, that I was an alcoholic. And it wasn't really until I'd done that that I managed to get away from the, like I'd had two occasional slips of a sip, and then I spat it out, but that's still the same thing. So, yeah, uh, step one was a bit of a journey for me and now I like to sort of admit that I'm powerless over alcohol every day when I do my three, third step prayer because I always remember how I ha- where I came from and where I could go again. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Thank you, Chrissy. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's really special. All right, we're going to go and uh, have some more music. Here we go. Love. Maybe it's my destiny 
Maybe it's a test of me to bring out the best in me. Who knows? Who cares? All I know is that there's a reason for everything and whatever fate may bring. See, I didn't plan this. Some don't understand this. They try to play the role and thinking that's what a man is. To me, she's more than just a fashion accessory, and I'm protected by any means necessary. Two hearts, a two minds, two bodies, two souls, making one whole. Now it's gotta be told that what we have is more than just physical. Don't be so cynical. We gotta spiritual. Hey folks, welcome back. That was a bit of uh, urban species spiritual love from uh, Chrissy. Thank you, Chrissy, for that choice. We had a little bit of a groove going on in here. Right, tonight we are talking about step one, and it's my turn to do a bit of a share for you now to um, just discuss what step one was for me. And, and for myself, uh, I started uh, drinking when I was 14 and I didn't stop till I was 49 so that was 35 years on and off uh, so it took me a long time to realise that my life uh, was completely unmanageable uh, I fought it for a long time I started out drinking at 14 after a traumatic event was actually at a school camp of all things <clears throat> stole a bit of uh, gin out of my aunt and uncle's booze cabinet because I was living with them at the time and um, mixed it with a bit of orange juice and it tasted terrible but it didn't stop me because the feeling from it was well it was excellent you know at that stage it got rid of all of the the fear and trauma that I was feeling in life uh, it, it made me feel happy it made me feel um, excited uh, Felt like I was on top of the world. In fact, at that camp that night after drinking that gin, I got uh, the girls to wrap me up in toilet paper and I put a torch under my chin and ran around the camp <laughs> looking like a mummy going, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's how good it made me feel. <laughs> Just a little bit nutty. You know, and, and it was such an elixir, it was such a great thing uh, that, 
then fr- from then on, I, I you know, tried to get my hands on alcohol whenever I could. And each time it made me feel better. And uh, uh, until, you know, by 16, I, I could actually drink a dozen beers, um, which is a bit ridiculous at 16. Uh, now that I look back at that, it's... Uh, I certainly didn't think it was then. I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> but uh, I continued to drink. I actually organised my life around drinking. I um, worked with people, uh, got into accounting, and I don't know, the accountants to me were pretty big drinkers. And uh, we would partake every Friday and uh, I was a massive binge drinker and I started flatting at 16 so we would um, we had that freedom for me it was freedom so I would drink regularly through that as well and you'd go to work you'd be a bit hungover and I didn't think my life was unmanageable it did not even come across my mind that I had already started managing my life around my social life, my drinking, my partying. Uh, didn't even think about it. And then in my early 20s, I ended up working in hospitality. Well, there you go, that to me, I was with my people. We were all natural drinkers. I was doing laybacks on the bar. A bottle of Zambuca on a, on a night was not a difficult thing. Um, occasionally those coffee beans would come back up, but, you know, that was just normal where you'd have those Zambukas with the coffee beans on the top. Do you remember when that was the trend in the 90s? Oh my gosh, terrible. Anyway, um, I was hanging out with what I thought were my people and, you know, some of them still are in my life to this day. Uh, met my husband, met my, my ex-husband uh, through drinking dressed as Marilyn Monroe, he was dressed as a priest, it was quite normal to um, go and get absolutely tragic in town looking like that. The number of places, my whole 30th birthday was involved around going to Melbourne and uh, drinking. That was the purpose of it, where we could go out for breakfast, have fucking Bloody Marys to start the day. You know, when I look back at it now, it was breakfast, it was lunch, it was dinner, Everything revolved around drinking. Uh, naturally, through drinking, relationships fell apart. My marriage fell apart, lost my home, and started doing what they call geographicals <clears throat> because I was doing things in my hometown that were getting back to people I knew. So I thought oh, I'd be easier if I just look for a job somewhere else. So I did. I went to the other end of the island and uh, the other end of the country. And um, yeah, I look at the insanity now that I was drinking with people from the age of 20 through to the age of 60. And not once did I look at the older people and think, oh, that's what I'm going to become. Um, but I did. Um so yeah, it was just a yeah, it was a, it's a crazy, insane time when I look back at it now. Uh, and then from there, well, I left did another geographical because I needed to, and then I did another geographical to Fiji. Then I did one to Perth. Then I did and I lived across Australia, did absolutely maddening things, and none of my relationships lasted. Uh, and then 
came back to New Zealand and then I met my uh, the father of my, my son and <clears throat> met him on a Sunday session. You know, Sunday session was a very normal thing to go and uh, get absolutely trolleyed on a Sunday. And I don't know what other people do on a Sunday, but it wasn't the thing we did. I mean, that meant you went out and if you got the tequilas, then you knew it was going to be a write-off. Um, there was drugs involved. There was alcohol involved. There was... I was known as the accident-prone person. Chrissy, I so understood what you were talking about then. And I think about um, the things that I did, putting myself in danger all the time. And as it, as it progressed, I put myself in more and more danger. In my personal relationships, got into abusive relationships. I had no self-worth. But not one point did I think, mm, that's not normal. I just thought I was a good survivor and I could keep going. It's okay. I learned how to get myself back up every time it went bad. But at 40, I found out I was pregnant. And uh, it wasn't planned, but it was an absolute gift. And uh, I had my, my child and... I stayed sober for the longest time. I did three years. I thought, I'm great. But I was never relaxed. I still, what, what do they call it? The um, I was I was champing at the bit, you know. There'd be a time when I'd be able to have a drink. I just had to get through those first three years. It would be all right. And uh, it came, that, that opportunity came, and I took it and thinking, I'll just have a six-pack. I'll only have a couple of those ciders. That's all I'll have. And they were gone pretty darn fast within less than two hours and um, I was back on that roller coaster it took me seven years to get off that roller coaster to 49 uh, and um, I did an incredibly stupid thing I'd been done for drink driving but I considered uh, something that I thought that put my son and I in complete danger and uh, that was my wake-up call and I also had those times where I thought no how could I possibly live without alcohol how could I do that the whole prospect of that was far too scary so that was what put me off that was the pure thing that put me off coming into AA at 25 I'd been told I was an alcoholic my doctor had actually sent me through to a, a specialist and I left that going I'll be right I'll just manage it and so through my managing <laughs> my alcoholism, I, um, yeah, I lost my home, lost my marriage, lost many relationships, moved a lot. I've lived in more places than my age. And uh, unfortunately, I took my son on that journey from, from um, three through to when I stopped as well. We've moved in many a place. Um, but I must say where we are now has been the most safest with the least amount of fear. Uh, I lived in fear. I think fear drives us to drink. And I walked into a meeting, my first meeting on a Monday, almost two years ago now, and someone told me I had a disease. I didn't have a drinking problem. I actually had a disease. And it all made sense. It made complete sense. And I haven't had a drink since. 
that doesn't happen for everybody. I'm fully aware of that. Like I really respect Chrissy's honesty and her story in regards to that year and a half and Tony's time coming in and out and you know taking himself right down to that down to hell. And uh, yeah, my hell was the possibility of losing my son, and that was just crazy. So for me, I walked in heard it was a disease that I had actually no control over it and how I saw it was basically if I'd been a diabetic I wouldn't be sitting there eating a bowl of lollies as an alcoholic why would I sit there and keep drinking keep drinking I'd got to a stage where I was hiding it or I thought I was hiding it (laughs) as we know everybody around us here really does recognise it Uh, but yeah it's it is an insane disease and the relief I got from admitting I was powerless over alcohol was so astronomical for me. It's been an incredible journey uh, since walking into the rooms of AA. I have a life today that I couldn't have dreamed of. I have a sense of well-being. I have a sense of worth. Uh, which when I came into these rooms I certainly did not have. I thought I was, uh, yeah, I could have been washed down the gutter and nobody would have missed me. So I have a better relationship with my families. I have some fantastic relationship with my friends. I'm incredibly lucky. I have three really good friends who have stuck by me. Uh, And I've met a whole lot of people through AA doing service that has enriched me and uh, I have evolved in the last you know almost two years to somebody I didn't think I would ever see so I'm incredibly grateful to AA and that's step one step one for me was uh, something that I I just didn't imagine my life could be uh, so calm calm might the right word yeah I think it is it's really blessed my life uh, and finding um, yeah finding the rooms of AA and all I did on that Sunday night while battling myself on whether I was going to go out and buy some more alcohol is that I googled AA meetings in the place where I live and then got the gumption to go to it, a lunchtime meeting. It was really nerve-wracking. It was really scary. I sweated a lot, but it was uh, worth every bit because now I go into AA several times a week and um, I feel, yeah, I feel a bit more whole. I feel well mentally. I feel well within myself and life is good. Um it's not, yeah, it's, it's, it's a blessing. And I'm really grateful for Bob, Bill, all those people that started it out in the 1930s and all those people who have continued making AA happen and these two that are sitting in the room with me. So I'm incredibly lucky, folks. Life is as it should be thanks to uh, taking the step one. So I'm going to put on some music. Let's have a little groove. We could be strangers in the night We could be passing in the shadows 
couldn't be closer if we tried When we're caught in the headlights We could be faces in the crowd We could be passing in the shadows Laughing the risk of being found When we're caught in the headlights Welcome back, folks. I've had a thoroughly enjoyable evening with you two this evening. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, no, it's been good. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. And um, so I think it's, well, we're getting near the end of the show, uh, folks. So uh, with uh, our closing acknowledgements, I just want to remind our listeners that if you want to stop, if you want to drink, that is your business. But if you want to stop, we can help. So... And I'm just going to put a plug in for the 0800 AA Works phone number, which is 0800 229-6757. If you've got any questions about alcoholism or you just think you may have a problem, then this is a great number to call. There'll be an alcoholic on the phone that answers. Nothing quite like an alcoholic on the phone yeah. answering. <laughs> and, and we'll be sober. Yeah. 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 A sober yeah. alcoholic a sober on alcohol. the phone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, AA Intergroup, um, the 
is um, under AA Otago Intergroup. The web address is aaotago.org.nz and that's a good way to keep up to date with um, meetings, times, where they are and um, other things that are happening here in Otago. Uh, our postal address here is um, AA Otago Intergroup, PO Box 6115, Dunedin North, Dunedin 9059. And the New Zealand website, which keeps you up to date with things nationally, is aa.org.nz. That's all for me. Wonderful. Thanks, Chrissy. Thank you for being part of the show this evening you too and thank you everybody who's been out there listening today and if you picked up a drink today then I think step one probably still evades you yes first, yeah first first yeah. step don't pick up that drink that's it yep. yeah and head whatever to a do, meeting yeah whatever you do don't pick up that drink and go to a meeting yeah I think uh, I don't know about you too but that's that's one of my rules every morning is that you start your day with that? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yep. yeah great. Yep. All right, folks, we're going to close out today with a bit of crowded house. It's only natural. Thanks very much. We'll see you next time. Bye. When you know where you are, you know it's gonna come true Getting your arms, I remember
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.